Last week we heard from the Apostle Paul about how our knowledge of God should affect the way we relate to other Christians and how love really should be the main driver in our attitudes. In today's chapter, Paul's going to be talking about how to think about our freedom in Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. 
to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who, go, who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, good evening, folks. Nice to be with you again. We're going to begin uh, thinking a little bit more into 1 Corinthians 9 tonight, but there's quite a lot for us to cover there. So let me just make a quick plug that uh, I'm going to be skipping over some details in, in the chapter. If you've got questions about those particular things, why you send an email to the church office Ask a question, we can tackle it on the deeper podcast during the week and uh, maybe get you some answers. Why don't I pray for God's help and then uh, we will dive in. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you have orchestrated this very evening so that each one of us would be here uh, with your word open, uh, ready to receive what you are going to say to us tonight. Uh, Lord, you know the circumstances of our lives. You know uh, where perhaps there might be parts of our lives that are not yet in conformity with this pattern that we're going to discover tonight. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, would you be bringing those things to mind as we hear? Right, well, would you be probing and prompting us to repent where we need to and to obey where we need to? Uh, Lord, we ask all of this so that we would be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus, and that we would love and serve him with more of our life and so bring you glory. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, it was 57 years ago in 1965 that Mick Jagger sang his famous rock song, I'm free to do what I want any old time. Now, uh, some of you are old enough to remember when that song came out. Some of you are about the age that you remember Maroon 5 singing about Mick Jagger having some moves a few years ago. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. Just roll with it. Very famous rock song from the 60s. And uh, when that song came out and Mick Jagger was singing, I'm free to do what I want any old time, that was kind of a radical sentiment to really sort of be singing about at that time. Uh, the idea in the song is that you don't have to follow the script that your family has written for you or your country might lay out for you, or your church perhaps even. You don't have to be who they want you to be. You're free to be who you want to be any old time and to do what you want, free to decide how to live life your own way. That kind of sentiment, it was, it was going against the conventional wisdom of the time, but that was part of the movement of the 60s, wasn't it? Now, to our modern ears, we look back at that song maybe and we think it's kind of quaint, 
Because, well, it's it's self-evident now, isn't it? That, of, co- of course, Mick Jagger was right. Maybe he was being prophetic 57 years ago. Of course we're free to do what we want any old time. That's, that's how life is supposed to be lived, isn't it? Uh, we make decisions that are best for us. We decide who we want to be, and nobody else should tell us who to be. That's just obvious now, right? Uh, I read the other day, and it probably shouldn't have come as a surprise to me, that the most popular song that gets played at funerals, you know, I want to guess. Were you here this morning? Do you hear this? No. Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. That's, that's the catch cry at funerals, isn't it? That's what everybody wants to be able to say at the end of their life, that no one told them where, who to be or where to live or how to do things. They did it their own way. That's the good life, isn't it? That's certainly what our society thinks the good life is. That is the attitude of the culture we live in. Our culture values freedom very highly. It, it values the right to self-determination very highly. In the last 20 years or so, we have begun to elevate the value of authenticity. That is now the defining value in our culture, I think. Authenticity is the idea that you have got to be true to yourself, uh, that you are only going to find happiness in this life if you follow your heart's desire. And, And if anyone tries to stop you or get in your way, stop you from doing what you want, being who you want to be, well, that's actually harmful to you because it's not letting you be authentic. That's such a, a tightly woven value in our society that we really don't like it these days when people get in the way of our freedoms and our rights. A, a very casual observer can notice that over the last three years of this pandemic, right? We have not found it easy when the government has gotten in the way of our freedoms and told us where we can or can't go, what we can or can't do. We bristle against that kind of thing because we value freedom so highly. We want to be able to say with Mick Jagger, no, I'm free to do what I want any old time. The question is, is that aspiration okay for a Christian? Is that how we're supposed to live if we follow Jesus? Uh, if you were here last week, uh, you will remember that uh, we, we kicked off this 1 Corinthians series and, and really this first three chapters, chapters 8, 9 and 10, is one chunk dealing with a controversy that was going on in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago. The controversy was whether they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And you remember last week, Paul says, yes, you can eat that meat. You're free to eat that meat because remember, idols are nothing. Uh, there's... Uh, only one God, the idols don't really exist. Christians are free in Christ. And so, yes, you have the right to eat it. Paul argued that last week. But he also said to them that they ought to lay down that right. And they had to limit their freedom out of love for other people. Yes, you're free, but choose to give up that freedom for the sake of someone else. That was a countercultural kind of a message uh, back then, and it's a countercultural message now too. And and in this chapter, in chapter 9, when we get here, Paul kind of at this point turns the spotlight onto himself and, and he shows us the way that he thinks about his own freedoms in life and how to navigate them as a Christian. And there are four things I think that Paul wants, us to, sh- wants to show us about himself in this chapter, things for us to learn from that will help us to think rightly about freedom in our lives. 
four things we're going to see in Paul's life. First thing, Paul's privileges. That's the first point, Paul's privileges. So chapter 8, he's told them, surrender your rights, lay them down for the good of other people. In this chapter, chapter 9, he starts by vigorously defending his own rights as an apostle, which is a funny place to kind of begin. But his first words there, chapter 9, verse 1, they are words that would sound right at home in 21st century Australia, aren't they? Am I not free, says Paul? Yes, you're free, Paul. Of course, it's the obvious answer. Yes is the implied answer. You could kind of imagine that being on a placket at a rally somewhere these days. Couldn't you? Am I not free? Yes, we are free. He goes on, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Yes, yes, yes. No one's going to argue these things, Paul. What are you getting at? Okay, you're, you're a legitimate apostle. That's what he's trying to set up here in verse 1. He's a real deal apostle. He's got the credentials. And because of that, He's going to go on to say he's got some rights that come with that. He's got the right, particularly, to be financially supported as an apostle for the ministry that he's doing. So have a read from verse 4 with me. He says, Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Now, from this point, what Paul is going to do from verse 7 onwards is he's going to give reason after reason after reason why he deserves to be paid for what he's doing. Uh, I count in these verses five different reasons that Paul lists here. And we're not going to go into all of them, but I do want to just zoom in on a couple of them, give you a taste of the kind of argument of Paul here. Uh, Have a read from verse 7. Paul says this, "'Who serves as a soldier at his own expense?' Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Paul's first argument here is that it's right for him to be paid because that's just common practice in the workplace, isn't it? Whether it's in warfare or in farming or in shepherding, the worker doesn't work at his own expense. No, he's entitled to benefit from the labor he's doing. Uh, Before I finished uni, I used to work as a valet parker at a very fancy hotel in the centre of Sydney. And, uh, you know, as a valet parker, there were certain rights that I had. I got, I got to benefit from that work. I mean, it was just naturally right that I got to drive the fast cars around the streets of Sydney when the owners were up in the hotel, right? That's obvious. No, I'm kidding. My point was going to be when I drove to work, I didn't have to pay for my parking at the valet. That was just like common sense. I was working in the car, I was managing the car park. I wouldn't have to pay for that. It's common sense. That's kind of Paul's point here. Paul's preached the gospel in Corinth He's served this church and he has a right to be supported by the people that he's ministering to. That's his first reason. Uh, Another reason that he gives here in this passage why he deserves to be paid is in verse 9. And eventually what he says in verse 9 is that I deserve to be paid because God's not into animal cruelty. That's the reason. Have a read of verse 9 up on the screen here. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Do you notice that? It's that weird quote for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And Paul's like, aha, I see, I deserve to be paid. Now, the question is, what's that got to do with a, a pastor being paid, an apostle being paid? You're thinking to yourself, who's the most ox-like of the pastors here at WBC? 
Is it right? Is it right? Is it can- Let me explain. Uh, an ox in the ancient world was kind of the equivalent of a tractor. It's the thing that pulls the plow to harvest the grain. It pulls a stone to, to crush the grain to help turn it into wheat once it's harvested. And, and Paul looks back at this instruction in the book of Deuteronomy where God says it's cruel when you're getting an ox to do that work, to put a, a mask over its face, a muzzle over its mouth, to stop them from having a little snack on the grain that they're working on. And, and Paul looks at that instruction in Deuteronomy and he says, that's not just about oxen. That's actually been written for us. It's been written primarily to describe how we are supposed to support gospel workers. To deny a gospel worker pay is like muzzling an ox as it works. And so the second reason Paul gives here why he deserves this, he has a right to be paid as an apostle, is because the Bible says so. There's biblical support for this idea. That's his second argument. And he goes on and on. There's more and more reasons. We can spend some time looking at them in the podcast if you're interested. But I do just want to kind of hit pause, if you like, on, on the, the sermon at this point. And just to make a, a quick point of application on, on this point as we talk about money here. Uh, this is not the main point of this passage, uh, but it is important for us to mention. Whilst we're on the topic of uh, the importance of financially supporting gospel workers, I want to say, as a financially supported gospel worker standing here, uh, I want to say that I'm very thankful for the stipend that I receive from you. Uh, that stipend allows me to pay my mortgage and to feed my kids. It frees me up from having to work a second job so that I can dedicate myself to this work here. I'm very thankful for your generosity. I'm thankful that this church is a church that takes care of its pastors in that way. But uh, I think it would be a dereliction of my pastoral duty if I didn't point out to you tonight that if you're a Christian and that if WBC is your church, and so realize that I'm putting myself in that category too, then it is our responsibility, yours and mine, to give money to fund the preaching of the gospel here. Uh, All of the reasons that Paul lists here in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, they are as true for us as they were for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Not least of all is is the final reason Paul gives in verse 14. Did you notice that? Verse 14, he says that Jesus actually commands us to do that. We can't sort of get around this. Verse 14, the Lord, Jesus, has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So if you're not financially giving to gospel ministry here at this church, and yet this is your church, Here is Jesus commanding you to give. I'm just going to leave that one with you. Uh, I do want to just say as well, ever since COVID, we've stopped the practice here of passing around collection bags. We used to do that. We don't do that anymore. And so if you want to give financially, there's a locked box at the back of this auditorium over there. If you want to give cash or a check or whatever, you can put it in there. Preferably, though, we'd love it if you give electronically. It just makes life easier for us to, to sort of manage that side of things. And all of that information is readily accessible on our church website. You don't have to go far to look for it. So go there if that's something that you want to do. If you're not financially giving, I want to encourage you to give. All right, that's the end of that kind of tangent, that side application. I want to get back to the main point of the, the passage here. Paul's defended his rights to be paid. He's established that, yes, he deserves to be paid as an apostle. And then, verse 15, he turns around, and it's quite shocking, really. He says that he hasn't actually used that right at all. Have a look there at verse 15. He says he's entitled 
to be paid. There's no doubt about it. But he hasn't accepted a single cent from this church. In fact, he, he says, I'd rather die than have you pay me for doing gospel ministry here. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? I mean, it's an open and shut case. Paul deserves to be paid. So what is it that is making Paul make this decision to give up his compensation as a gospel worker? Well, that's our second point, the reason for this. It's Paul's passion. Paul's passion. Look back to verse 12 with me, second half of verse 12. Paul says, but we did not use this right, the right to be paid. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul's greatest concern is that nothing should stand in the way of the proclamation of the gospel. That is the thing that he cares most deeply about. He thinks it is so important for the Corinthians to become Christians and then stay Christians that he's even willing to give up his wage for that cause. And so if there's a chance that people might misread his motives and think that he's only there in Corinth preaching because he's going to make a quick buck, well, then in Paul's mind, it is better for him to work as a tent maker, to pull overtime, to work nights so that he can preach the gospel for free and nothing would hinder it. When Paul told them back in chapter 8, hey, guys, I want you to lay down your right to eat that idol meat for the good of other people. Do you realize what Paul is saying here is that I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't already done myself. In fact, I've given up a lot more than I'm asking you to give up. I'm giving up my right to a living, a livelihood as an apostle. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? I wonder, is there anything in your life that you are so passionate about that you'd be willing to give up your wage and to do that thing for free just so that it continues to happen. I don't think there's many things that really fall into that category for us. But Paul is saying that the preaching of the gospel is one thing that really does belong in that category. Making known that message of the forgiveness of sins that is found only through Jesus, that, according to Paul, is the most important thing in the world. C.S. Lewis famously once said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I think a lot of Christians live as if the gospel is only moderately important. Friends, it makes no sense to have Jesus as your hobby. We can't have the gospel, you know, somewhere in our priority list between our career and maybe our next overseas holiday. Maybe that's where Jesus belongs. The gospel, the salvation of souls through Jesus is just too important. That's what Paul is telling us here. It is so important that it is worth giving up your rights and your freedoms so that we can see that gospel advance. I ask you, is that how important the gospel is to you? One of the things I've been reflecting on a little bit this week is what people had to give up for me to receive the gospel, for me to hear the gospel some 20-odd years ago. I don't know if you've ever stopped and really thought about that and tried to do the calculus of just what it took for God to get you. 
I was thinking this week about the amazing amount of money that must have been given away by countless people for years and years and years to establish the church through which I first heard the gospel. I can't quantify that amount of money. It's staggering. I was thinking earlier this week about all of the people in my life who gave up so much time and energy to sit and talk with me and answer my questions and read the Bible with me and point me to Jesus when they could have been doing literally anything else in their life. I was thinking a little bit about some of the most influential pastors and leaders that I've had in my life. People who walked away from promising careers, from greater financial security, probably ease and comfort, and yet they did that and dedicated themselves to the cause of the gospel. It took all of those things for me to hear the gospel and more that I'm blissfully unaware of. But friends, do you see that the gospel is so important that making those kinds of decisions, those kinds of sacrifices, is absolutely worth it? Are you willing to give things up, to make sacrifices, to see people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour? Our culture is going to tell you to live for yourself, just pursue your own happiness, make the most of your freedoms. But the gospel comes along and it just it changes our perspective on that narrative. It has to. Because when we receive salvation through Jesus, we, we realize, don't we, that this life that we're living now, this side of eternity, it's no longer about our own comfort. Rather, it's about other people coming to know the comfort that is found in Jesus. That's the purpose of our lives. That is Paul's great passion, and it should be ours too. When that becomes our passion, I tell you, it changes the way that you live your life. It changes the way you relate to every single person in your life. That's the third thing that Paul wants to show us here, is his posture that comes as a result of his passion, his posture. So read with me from verse 19. Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Uh, Back in the ancient Near East, the context that Paul was writing into, uh, if you were a slave, then um, to put it one way, you had to be culturally flexible uh, because you would have to adopt the culture and the beliefs and the worldview of whatever master or whatever family you were sold into. Uh, So, for example, if you were in Asia and the Roman army swept in and conquered you and then sold you into slavery, well, then you had to leave your customs, your practices behind and adopt Roman customs and norms, adopt a Roman social identity. You were expected to take on all of that. And for slaves, that was just kind of forced on them. They didn't get a choice in that. Uh, And... Often, it wasn't just once that that happened to a slave. If they were then sold on again to a different family, well, then say goodbye to Roman customs and say hello to Jewish customs or whatever it might be. Over and over again with each family they moved into. Can you imagine being told to change every custom, every practice that defines your culture, having no choice in that matter? I mean, that sounds awful, doesn't it? Well, here is the Apostle Paul freely choosing to enter into that way of life, to subject himself to a revolving door of cultural slavery. 
but with the ultimate goal to win as many people as possible. But Paul is saying that that posture, that is what the gospel does to you. It, it compels you to be reaching out to the world at your own cost, not at theirs, because that's the pattern the gospel presents, isn't it? That our Lord Jesus left the comfort of his throne room in heaven and descended to become a man, to live amongst us, to go out of his comfort zone, to win us. And so we too must step out of our comfort zones to connect with others. Freedom under Jesus, says Paul, is throwing your life into the good of other people. And that means showing them Jesus at personal cost to yourself, putting aside your rights, putting aside your preferences and privileges. That's exactly what Paul did. From verse 22, he says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, to win those not having the law. Verse 22, To the weak I became weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I'm not going to choose to just stand on my rights and to cling on to my freedoms. I am going to bend for the sake of other people. That's his posture, flexibility with cultural barriers. He will stop eating pork to mix with the Jews. He will go to the pork or you can eat buffet to mix with the Gentiles. He'll go to the fruity fair trade cafe up in Bulli to mix with those folks. He'll head to Dapto Dogs to reach the people in the south. Paul would do just about anything to reach people with the gospel. Isn't that an idea that would just absolutely transform a church? Being willing to do absolutely anything to reach people with the gospel? You've probably heard of the, the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He was an expert at this, of removing cultural barriers in order to, for people to hear the gospel. Uh, Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China, and he became, in every way that he could, Chinese. He dressed like a Chinese person, spoke like a Chinese person, ate like a Chinese person, lived amongst the Chinese people, so that those things, the way he looked, the way he dressed, the way he acted, how he spoke, that those things wouldn't be a barrier to the gospel. Uh, I have a mate, Steve, in the UK. He's a pastor over there. And uh, he pastors a church in one of the most socially disadvantaged neighbourhoods in all of England. Uh, Steve's from a pretty middle-class family, though. He would probably fit in here pretty comfortably. But he had a heart to reach those people for whom there was not really any other kind of faithful gospel witness at the time. And so Steve made the decision to accommodate himself for the sake of those people. He moved his whole family into the housing estates And he started to dress like the people who lived there and talk like the people who lived there so that he could reach the people who lived there. And he's planted a church and it's thriving because he was willing to be flexible with those cultural barriers. Now, those kind of examples, Hudson Taylor, my mate Steve in the UK, I mean, they sound like radical, you know, examples. I'm not saying that you have to do that kind of a thing to share Paul's posture here. Sharing Paul's posture really just means being willing to be a little bit more flexible with who you relate to and how you relate to them. There's this uh, great story about Queen Victoria, who uh, once upon a time was hosting this fancy dinner, had this dignitary from a foreign country come, and they were sort of the guest of honour. And at the end of the meal, the the waiters all brought out little finger bowls, you know, that you wash your hands in after the meal kind of thing. And uh, this guest of honour, he'd never seen that before, so he didn't know what to do. So he picked up the finger bowl and began to drink from it. And there was this stunned silence in the room. Nobody kind of knew what 
to go on there. And I thought, man, this guy, he's just put his foot in his mouth, bowl in his mouth. And then Queen Victoria, at the head of the table, picks up her finger bowl and starts to have a drink from it as well. And soon everybody at the table was drinking from their finger bowls in order to fit in. You see, what the Queen did then was that she gave up her right to be dignified. She gave up her right in order to help that person to feel welcomed. I wonder, are there ways that you could do the same kind of thing? Uh, I read about a pastor who worked in a kind of lower class area. His wife loved to do hospitality. She was a very gifted cook. And so she eventually discovered that as she tried to reach out and invite all these mums from her local school over for lunch, gradually they began declining her invitations. And she figured out why. It was because they were very intimidated by the scale and the grandeur of her cooking. And so in order to reach those mums, she decided that in her hospitality, she would simply offer tin tomato soup and bread rolls. Simple thing to accommodate yourself in order to reach those people. Uh, I know someone who decided that they wanted to make an effort to reach the lepers in their workplace, the smokers. And so they decided that every every morning during Smoko, they would get up and they would go outside to a little courtyard and hang out with the smokers in the courtyard there and just to have a chat and get to know them. My friend, he didn't start smoking, but he just had to kind of endure the cold and tolerate the secondhand smoke in order to have a chat with his colleagues to build relationships. He was being flexible. It's probably worth flagging at this point that as you think about who you can reach, who you can build a bridge to with the gospel, we're not saying that you have to adopt all of the habits and all of the customs of those people that you're trying to reach. You just need to be a little bit flexible. Be willing to take a step towards them. Consider how you can make yourself their slave for the sake of the gospel. Have a think. What are the barriers that you could remove in order to reach the people that God has placed in your life? your Hindu neighbour, your footy-obsessed colleague, the homeless guy you see at the train station every morning. The gospel teaches us to have that kind of a posture, to, to make ourselves slaves to others so that they might hear about the salvation that is found only in Jesus. That's going to be hard. There's no denying that. That's going to be a costly kind of thing to do, to make yourself a slave of other people. But it will also be worth it. That's Paul's final point here, as he reminds us at the end of this passage about the prize, Paul's prize that he stands to gain. Uh, From verse 24, he uses this kind of language, this metaphor of an athlete in training to describe how costly it will be to make yourself a slave of other people. Pick it up from verse 25. Listen listen to what he says here. Everyone Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He's envisioning kind of the Olympics or the the Isthmus Games as they were back then. Uh, And that's natural for an athlete who's trying to win that prize, right? Enter into a strict discipline to prepare. Uh, You may know this guy, Eliud Kipchoge. He's the world's best marathon runner. Recently, he just beat his own world record for the fastest ever marathon by about 30 seconds in Berlin in uh, September this year. He ran the whole marathon in two hours, one minute, and nine seconds. But to achieve that incredible goal, to win that prize, to be the fastest man over that distance in the whole world, he has to live a life of pretty ridiculous discipline and intentionality. Uh, Elliot spends most of his year living at very high altitudes in his home country of Kenya. Uh, During a typical week, not a high-volume week, a typical week, he runs between about 200 and 220 
kilometres. Uh, he mixes those runs in with strength and conditioning sessions. He sleeps a very strict nine hours every night and he always has a one-hour nap in the middle of the day to aid his recovery. He follows a very regimented diet. He records the, every detail of his day in his notebooks from the efficacy of the massage that he received earlier to how he's feeling about the shoes that he ran in today. It's an incredible amount of discipline that he has to enter into for the sake of that prize. That's kind of natural, though, for athletes, isn't it? High-level athletes. I want to say, friends, how much more should we be prepared to exert ourselves and be disciplined in this regard? When you compare what we are working for, what the prize is that we stand to gain. Look what he says, verse 25 again. They do it, the athletes, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Eliot's world record, it will get broken someday. His, his trophies will turn to dust. Athletes' rewards do not last. But we Christians, we for whom the gospel is a passion, we who make ourselves slaves of other people so that some might be saved, we stand to receive the crown of eternal life that will never fade away. All of our cultural flexibility, all of our labor in the Lord, all of our discipline and sacrifice for the cause of the gospel, it will be worth it when we receive that prize. That is the goal. That is why Paul will keep pouring out his life for the cause of the gospel. In light of that prize, all of our freedoms, all of our rights, all of our privileges, none of them matter, do they? Do you see, friends, in this chapter that Paul is showing that real freedom is seeing all of the things that you're allowed to do and then deciding to do or not do them so that others can hear the gospel. That's true freedom, says Paul. That's how we ought to think about our own freedom, our own rights as Christians. Not, I'm free to do what I want any old time. No, 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 that's not fitting for a Christian. Rather, I will do whatever it takes for people to meet Jesus. True freedom is saying, I will become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you so much that you are a God who has given his only son for our sake. Not because we deserved it, not because it was easy, but out of your immense love for us. Thank you that you purchased us for yourself and you've shown us how to live that kind of a life, a life where we pour ourselves out in service of others for the sake of the gospel. God, would you fill us with your spirit so that we might have the strength and the resolve and the desire and the passion to live that kind of a life, to take that kind of a humble, other person-centered posture. And God, would you show us even this week the people that we might build bridges with so that we can share the hope that we have in Jesus with them. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.